The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks so much for joining us. The Wall Street Journal opining this morning of Mr. Trump's, uh, President Trump's speech yesterday, uh, that it was strong but conciliatory. Uh, His dual goal seemed to be in reinforced deterrence while also offering a path for Iran to negotiate the 2015 nuclear deal, renegotiate the 2015 nuclear deal, and become a normal country. Yeah, it was a victory. It was a victory for President Trump. It was what... They said it was, meaning the Trump administration, the president, Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Esper, over the weekend as it was being guffawed by the Sunday talkie hosts. How how is taking out one of uh, Iran's top generals, how is that de-escalation? How is that de-escalatory in nature? That's escalating. And then... The ensuing 48 hours was all about World War Three, the reinstitution of the draft. How do I talk to my kids about Trump's strike against Soleimani? Headline, a think piece in Time magazine. Absurd. And uh, that's not just uh, Trump loyalists suggesting that. Ian Bremmer was on CNN and had to deliver the bad news to the CNN anchors. Oh, we're, we're very obviously in a de-escalating mode, and we, we are for two reasons. The first of all is because for the last year, as the Americans were destroying the Iranian economy, Iran was responding and didn't know what the red lines were, didn't know what would get Trump to react or not. They hit tankers, right? They hit American drones, big ones. They took out 50% of Saudi oil, and the U.S. didn't react. I mean, so much so that the Saudis ended up having to negotiate with Iran on the sidelines. Be like, well, the Americans aren't helping us. What do we do? Right. So finally, they go and they attack a U.S. base in Kirkuk in the north of Iraq. They go after the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. And the supreme leader of Iran has the temerity to tweet and say the U.S. can't do anything. And, you know, the United States, President Trump responded, responded very significantly and has shown what the red lines are um, and has shown that he'll escalate. And frankly, that at some point needed to be done. Did it need to be done by actually killing Soleimani? No, I think you could have done it more modestly, but it sent a very strong message. And the Iranians are vastly weaker than the United States. They're not suicidal. And so their response has been the minimum possible military engagement against the Americans. That is wildly de-escalatory. Right. Ian Bremmer, foreign affairs columnist for Time magazine, not a Trump flack. But he recognizes that Trump recognized Iran's de-escalation. He imposed new sanctions to keep the pressure on. And he provided a path to diplomacy while calling America's Western allies to engage. Some warmonger. Something else Bremer said that's important to point out because it is completely lost on so many of the deep thinkers uh, and members of the Illuminati inside the Beltway. And that's something Ayatollah Khomeini said 40 years ago. Anyone who will say that religion is separate from politics is a fool. He does not know Islam or politics. The point is that these are political actors, not suicide bombers, the Iranian mullahs. And if you don't understand that, then you run around with your hair on fire yelling World War Three. 
And uh, the Trump administration seems to understand that. One more piece from Ian Bremmer on the uh, ridiculous wag-the-dog conspiracy theories being propagated by the left. This is a win for Trump, and, and it's clear that it is. Uh, the question is, look, I, I never thought Trump wanted to wag the dog. If he wanted war with the Iranians, he's had plenty of opportunity to move in that direction, especially after the Saudis were hit. I mean, frankly, when the drone was taken out, the Secretary of Defense was trying to get Trump to bring uh, fighter jets uh, manned to be escorting drones when they were engaged in those surveillance missions. And Trump said no, because he didn't want to get stuck in war. So he wasn't about wagging the dog. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Philip Klein from The Washington Examiner. He is executive editor of The Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Philip, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prop Show. Appreciate it. Thank you for everything. Now, you uh, uh, wrote a piece on this for The Washington Examiner uh, uh, after the Iran, the Iranian uh, retaliatory strike against the uh, two bases in Iraq. Uh, if this was Iran's response, then killing Soleimani was a major victory for Trump. Uh, do you think that he consummated that victory with his remarks yesterday that the Wall Street Journal described as strong, yet with a note of conciliation? Uh, I believe he did, um, but you know, we don't, I mean, it, we should be cautious to know that we don't know if there's going to be more coming down the road that you know, might cause a revisiting of this. But in terms sure. of the way the things look now is that, um, basically, the the President Trump took out, dealt a major blow to the regime without absorbing any U.S. casualties. That's essentially the balance sheet of what happened. So it's it's a clear win uh, for Trump. I think that basically, um, to flesh that out a bit, basically, um, for decades, Iran has been destabilizing the region um, and the world through global terrorism, supporting Hezbollah in Lebanon, supporting, uh, you know, uh, killing um, American troops in Iraq, supporting the the civil war in Yemen um, and in Afghanistan. And if you go down and in Syria, they've um, held, they were, you know, bolstering the regime of Bashar Assad as he slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people. So, and at the the heart of this effort um, was Soleimani. He was the architect of Iran's regional strategy to extend its influence from Tehran all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, And he also uh, was the person who was implementing this strategy. He was behind, if you recall, during the Iraq war, when you'd read about um, American troops getting killed by roadside bombs and IEDs, um, that was orchestrated by Soleimani. Um, and more recently, you had Shiite militias in Iraq firing rockets um, and killing U.S. Uh, military personnel. And so um, it, Trump made the decision to strike. And when he killed Soleimani, the big debate, everyone agreed that this was a major blow to, to Iran. Uh, there were Iran experts that described this as bigger than Bin Laden, given his importance to the regime and its global strategy. And the only 
debate at the time was, well, is it worth the risk in the cost-benefit analysis taking him down if there's a furious response from Iran that ends up bringing us into an all-out war? Was it worth killing this guy, right? That was sort of the question. Um, But if this was Iran's response, I think you have to say that it clearly was. They fired some ballistic missiles that didn't do much damage and most importantly, didn't kill any Americans. Um, and the the U.S. got the argue one of the most important individuals in Iran. What so is- it was a clear victory, and it it established deterrence. Iran, in addition to firing rockets through proxies to U.S. soldiers, uh, in recent months they've been downing drones. They've been they. Uh, blew up oil fields in uh, Saudi Arabia. And so basically the, the U.S. had to establish deterrence through it with Iran, and Trump managed to do it in such a way that didn't involve large-scale airstrikes or military engagement. It didn't involve us going to war. Um, and he smartly, um, when he realized, he recognized that... Um, once Iran attacked U.S. troops, he had every justification um, to try to retaliate. But he smartly recognized that Iran was basically putting on a show for domestic consumption, so to save face with its own people. Um, and what he recognized rightly is that Iran has a lot more to lose from escalation than the United States. They've they've been. Um, uh, crippled by uh, sanctions, uh, their economy is doing poor. Uh, they're stretched throughout the Middle East with all of their various engagements. They're facing protests at home. They could ill afford to uh, have a uh, major conflict with the world's largest military because, for them, it's an existential threat. We're up against a break. Yeah. I, I want to come back and pick it up here. Also get your take on the dissatisfaction that Senators Lee and Paul had with the briefing that they received uh, and some of the history that's being rewritten by the left when it comes to uh, endless wars in the Middle East. We'll pick it up there on the Dan Prop Show. Wrap it up. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Philip Klein, executive editor of the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com, talking about uh, Trump's Iranian policy and comparing and contrasting that to... uh, previous policies, uh, policy choices of this sort in previous administrations uh, needs to happen in real time because you got a little bit of rewriting history going on. Let me give you a prime example of what I'm talking about. Ro Khanna, who's a Democrat congressman from California, had this to say about Trump's decision to author to uh, order the strike on Soleimani, a decision that uh, George W. Bush and President Obama both passed on. 
I do not, because this was not just Barack Obama, but the reporting I've seen says that President George W. Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney also passed on the chance to take out Soleimani. And the reason they all passed is they did not want to escalate a war with Iran. And I believe the President Obama had a strategy of the JCPOA that would prevent Iran from becoming nuclear. And there weren't these incidents during the Obama administration. We didn't have protests against our embassies. We didn't have the killing of American contractors. Uh, so America were safe at that time. Um, golly, point of order. Uh, can somebody get uh, Congressman Rohana, uh, Congressman Khanna, Ro Khanna, a copy of 13 Hours stat? Uh, no protests at embassies. Uh, Americans were safe. Uh, that sort of flies in the face of what happened at Benghazi. And that's actually a parallel. And it was a parallel that the left media was trying to make in the aftermath of the strike, or excuse me, in the aftermath of the attack on the embassy that precipitated the strike, this is going to be Trump's Benghazi. That's what Joy Reid on MSNBC t- uh, tweeted out. And in point of fact, this is Trump cleaning up, I would argue, uh, what he was left with in Iran, and that's what Secretary Pompeo argued. Not to mention, we still have a civil war going on in Libya, something else he inherited after the Obama administration took out Gaddafi, despite giving up, Gaddafi did, his WMDs. So, uh, Philip Klein, the, the rewriting of history and the uh, ever-shifting sands on the standards through which we analyze these geopolitical decisions. Yeah, so basically the 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 myth that um, Obama administration officials and Democrats and their media allies are trying to perpetuate is that Iran was somehow under control um, until Trump and that their belligerence started with Iran, with Trump tearing up the nuclear agreement. That couldn't be further than the truth. Uh, During the Obama administration, um, Iran orchestra was behind um, supporting Bashar Assad as he massacred hundreds of thousands of people, uh, targeted U.S. troops in Iraq. It it funded Hezbollah in Lebanon. It funded the Houthis in, in Yemen. It, I mean, you could go on and on throughout the, the list of this. What happened during the Obama administration is that Obama looked the other way because it um, – Wanted it was desperate to secure the nuclear deal. Uh, there was even a long article about how uh, the Obama administration explicitly ignored an investigation into a multi-billion-dollar uh, drug and weapon smuggling ring run by Hezbollah because they didn't want to upset Iran and so and risk the nuclear deal. And what happened was once they signed the nuclear deal. It made the entire media and the Democrats complicit in trying to downplay Iranian bad behavior. And what I find particularly rich by people saying, oh, Iran was under control, is that you could go back, as as we did, and if you read one of our, our recent editorials, is that John Kerry, when the Davy O'Neill announced, said, this just has to deal with the nuclear issue. So the... He explicitly said it has nothing to do with other bad behavior by Iran. 
the nuclear deal wasn't even intended to do anything else uh, um, on Iran. But what it did do is it enabled Iran's bad behavior to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars of sanctions relief when Iran still preserved its ability to build new ballistic missiles. And the uh, whole agreement, even if the whole, even if Obama, uh, Iran obeyed the agreement to the letter, they became a much stronger um, conventional threat with the money and sanctions relief. And over time, the nuclear deal expired anyway. So either way, they could get a nuclear weapon um, just while being a much stronger conventional threat. And so Trump comes in and says he's not going to allow his Iran policy to be held hostage by this terrible deal, um, as the Obama administration did. They they were handcuffed in confronting Iran's bad behavior because of their desperation to secure the deal. Uh, and so that that's why um, you know Trump's pursuing the accurate approach. Uh, all that said, uh, there was some dissatisfaction with the briefing. Uh, by administration officials to the U.S. Senate uh, yesterday. Uh, Mike Lee and Rand Paul in particular expressing displeasure with the quality of the information that was provided that was intended to explain the rationale to greenlight the decision. Uh, Mike Lee particularly uh, pronounced on the topic. Uh, What do you understand the dynamic to be there, particularly with Lee and Paul, who have been fairly good allies of the administration, why they would be publicly critical, even if they wanted more information, rather than try to handle this privately? Well, I think that ideologically, Rand Paul is anti-war, and I think he's extremely naive about Iran, Um, and he's been... Uh, trying, uh, he's been, I think, falling into the same trap as the Obama uh, type people, thinking that you could negotiate with Iran and and they're, you know, good people that are willing to do what, uh, you know, um, that can be trusted to have a negotiation with, um, and that you know, without sanctions and without pressure, that things are going to work out. With Iran, right? He's, he uh, he declared he's, he, after after the strike. He said that you know this. Uh, he doesn't see a way forward this uh, as the end of diplomacy. And in point of fact, of course, that that's not the case. It's the beginning yeah. of it. So so Rand Paul has been consistently wrong. I think Mike Lee is sort of in a different category, where Mike Lee is a constitutionalist, and he has consistently. Uh, being concerned with um, executive power and with the delegate Congress basically um, abandoning its it, not not being willing to assert itself as a co-equal branch of government. Um, I think so. I think for him, um, he's not as clearly sort of anti-war as um, uh, Rand Paul ideologically, but I think that he has concerns in terms of feeling that the the role of the Senate is disrespected, and that he's been consistent about that no matter what the administration has been. He is Philip Klein. He's the executive editor of the Washington Examiner. WashingtonExaminer.com is where you can find all of his work. Philip Klein, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate your time and interest. All right. All right. Thank you. Would you rescue me when I'm by myself? When I need your love, if I need your help, would you rescue me? Uh-huh. Would you rescue me? 
Back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, some great documentaries I've seen in the last three months mentioned on the show, including One Child Nation about China's ghastly 35-year one-child policy. Ron Howard's uh, recent documentary on Pavarotti, which was great. And then this documentary called The Guardians. I've talked about this on the show before. Uh, here's the trailer to sort of set up our conversation. If you are considering retiring here and you're an elderly, wealthy person, think twice. I spoke to my mom on Thursday and she was fine. I called her on Friday and there was nobody picking up. Somebody took my parents. It's not supposed to happen in America. I was fighting them back and he was fighting me. They grabbed me and they kept telling me, you'll love it there. I asked them where I was. You're on the sixth floor in the psych ward. People go in, corpses come out. All right, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and appoint your guardian today. A guardian is appointed through the courts to have authority over someone's life. You turn over immediately your bank account, checking account, savings account. They're using senior citizens as the key to the money. We have nothing left. There are relationships between the doctors, the lawyers, the private guardian industry, and the court. My aunt was victimized based on an incorrect diagnosis by an unqualified person. They were trying to convince us nothing to see here. And that raises red flags for any investigative journalist. We've got to keep the light shining on the people that are being taken. I cannot do this. I cannot let these people get away with everything. It needs a master investigation. And it got a master investigation thanks to Billy Mintz, the founder of Innovator and award-winning filmmaker who's produced and directed six feature-length documentaries and several narrative short films. Included and and the documentary that I'm referring to again, The Guardians. Billy Mintz, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is just a remarkable job. uh, This film, Uh, stunning, stunning. You watch the entire film with your mouth agape. You cannot believe what you document is happening in America. And we're talking about Clark County, Nevada, so Vegas, basically, uh, and the private guardian racket that literally has uh, strangers under the color of law able to take over the lives of senior citizens, take over their lives from their family members. Yes, and I want to uh, reiterate that this is not just happening in uh, Las Vegas. This is happening all around uh, the United States of America, including other countries like Canada and Australia. After um, screening the film all over the world, I get pretty much emails every day uh, from people that are caught up in the guardianship system. And, and, and again, it's important to note, I, I don't know uh, as much as you know about this happening across the country throughout the world, but uh, what you document in your film is the color of law, this, this industry 
racket, if you will, was uh, provided for by law, and thus it's so. This is one of the reasons so so difficult to unwind. And and what does the law allow for? Well, these are legal quote unquote kidnappings. Um, so basically, uh, they uh, the people that come for your parents or for yourselves have all of the legal backing they need, including the police, if they need, to take you from your home and put you in a nursing home against your will and then administer whatever drugs they want because they have, um, they have guardianship over your life. It's like invasion of the body snatchers. They become you. They, have, they make all the decisions over your personal and financial um, life. And what we see in your film is that public and private conspire against the private citizen. The actual county public guardian uh, is, and the family court is sort of in league with the private guardians to facilitate all this, facilitate what you're describing. Yeah, it's a, it's a racket. The whole thing is set up and it's all happening before you even know it. It's been happening for decades and it's a very well-organized uh, well-oiled machine. And I know that anybody listening to this is the first time they would hear this, they think that, uh, you know, this just sounds like conspiracy theory. Um, but take the theory out of it. This is a conspiracy. It's a legal conspiracy that's administered by the, the, the lawyers of family court, the people who work at family court, the judges, um, and your health care practitioners. Uh, they're all in on it. It's a, it's a, it's a billion-dollar business. Uh, we got a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about the mechanics of exactly how that works because you provide such great illustrations, tragic, uh, poignant, real families, real people. We're talking to documentarian Billy Mintz about his film, The Guardian. Just bust the moon. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to documentarian Billy Mintz, his uh, documentary, The Guardians, which I watched on Amazon Prime. I'm sure there are many other ways to access it. But, uh, I, Billy, I, I watched this in a cigar shop with a bunch of guys who normally get together. you got a TV in the room, smoking cigars. You know, it's a bit of a coffee clutch. When this film started, uh, the room just got quiet. And as it proceeded uh, over the course of the next 90 minutes, we are looking at each other. We cannot, I mean, I, I, we are incredulous. We cannot believe what we're seeing. We're talking about what we would do if somebody this, did this to one of our parents or relatives. It is infuriating and heartbreaking. And, and I just want to, if you could provide a, a summary of the mechanics of how somebody who is not a relative can use the state to take over your mom or your dad's life and finances as such that some of these uh, relatives are not even allowed to see their parents. Uh, when they show up at your door, they already own you completely. Uh, there's already a full proceeding that has happened before they show up at your door that give them uh, complete control over your life and your finances. Um, 
you know, it's obviously to watch the film, it goes into great detail. It's a very long movie, considering normal movies, it's 104 minutes because uh, it takes so long to explain the process. But yeah. there's family court, which deals with a very necessary uh, part of our society, which is guardianship, because uh, sometimes the infirmed uh, cannot take care of themselves, our, our elderly cannot take care of themselves, and they need a guardian. But this is a, a abuse of the guardianship system that uses the uh, things that we do need in our society and the people that are supposed to be taking care of us, um, uh, uh, taking care of the vulnerable, and it uh, takes advantage of that by um, assuming guardianship over people, whether they need it or not. And what they use is uh, they have a system, I'm sure every family court does it differently that are involved in this, uh, this scam. But uh, the people that are doing it in Las Vegas are, uh, in most of the cases that we found, they were using fake diagnosis of dementia. So basically, they would have a doctor. Usually the doctor has absolutely no relationship with the, uh, with the person in question, or sometimes they've met them once, and they sign a fake diagnosis of dementia. And this is all perpetuated by the guardians who are in business, the people that uh, end up taking over. They have all of these arms and legs and tentacles that uh, that work for them in order to create the system to uh, to take you over. So it's the fake diagnosis of dementia. It's brought to the judge. Uh, the judge has already pre-signed guardianship. So when you watch the records of these courts, uh, these uh, these court systems that the the people in question aren't even there, uh, you see he has already a pre-signed guardianship papers, and he just hands the guardianship paper to the guardian, and the guardian goes and shows up at the person's house, which gives them complete right to that person. And and this is key because people listening to this say, well, it's got to be an adversarial process, right? The the person that they're seeking guardianship over has to have an opportunity to present their own doctors, their own experts have to pre- present their own uh, proof that they are not incapacitated. They can take care of themselves. They don't need a guardian. But the system gets wired such as that often doesn't happen. It It is not adversarial and it is uh, uh, just one sided uh, with the moving party, the private guardian outfit. Yeah, these uh, proceedings, these court proceedings take place without the family even knowing that it's happening, which is, uh, um, it's not due process, which makes it even more, uh, you know, the bigger crime what they're doing is because they're taking away uh, our, our constitutional rights. And, and how, so, uh, how, there is, yeah. how, do, how do they, how do they, did you figure out um, how they identify the people they're going to go after? Oh, you got uh, in such a big industry. Like I said, this is a billion-dollar industry. Mm. So you have a, a huge tentacles of people that are out in the elderly communities that are uh, looking for uh, people that are vulnerable to the system, uh, looking for people that uh, might not have children. So the, these people work in your community centers. They work at your hospitals. If you are going into a hospital for your first time and you're given a sheet that asks for your financial information, you know that they're in on the system. There's no reason a hospital needs to know what your financial information. There's no reason your doctor needs to know your financial information. This is a very well-executed 
uh, system that has been existing much longer than you have become elderly. So you're as you age, you're walking in to the trap. So right, so they right, they're looking for people that have you know family that may be not uh, local family that may be estranged and then people with money because ultimately they take over your finances and that's where they make their money. They take over everything. They make all the decisions and it's, it's, it's a housing racket as well. They basically take your house within three days that you are in the nursing home and drugged. Um, you, your house is emptied. They go through your house. They look for the cash. They look for everything. And then they, uh, they sell your house off, uh, they sell off all your furniture. They sell everything off. Now, I, I don't want to uh, do a spoiler alert here, but there has been some law enforcement involvement in Clark County. But uh, you're left at the end of the film wondering if the system is still intact. Uh, it's law enforcement action with respect to uh, perhaps misspending of people's resources, but not the underlying systemic infirmities of this uh, of, of this. Um, let me be clear. My film uh, exposed the entire system, and uh, there were a couple arrests for some, you know, low-bearing fruit. Right. But it is going on just as before. Nothing has changed. Uh, FBI has been notified. We even were invited to uh, go talk with the FBI in D.C., where we gave them all of our research, and that was three years ago. And uh, I assure you that absolutely nothing has happened. He is Billy Mintz. He's the founder of Innovator, award-winning filmmakers, produced and directed six feature-length documentaries and several narrative short films. And if you want to start with consuming his work, start with The Guardians. This is an unbelievable film. Everybody should see it. And make sure you talk to your family about it, too. Everybody in your family should see it. Billy Mintz, thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful job with the film, and appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Crown them, then crown their ass. But they are who we thought they were. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is a little segment we call "They Are Who We Thought They Were." We are. They are who we thought they were. Yeah, Dennis Green. May he rest in peace. After the Bears uh, upset the Cardinals back in the day, uh, and uh, they are who we thought they were. The gun grabbers. The gun grabbers. Virginia Democrats. Uh, we've talked about this on the show. Uh, Governor of Virginia, Ralph KKK Northam, and Virginia Democrats at the state level, passing more strict gun control measures, allocating more taxpayer dollars for enforcement of the new measures, uh, including to the budget of the Department of Corrections, anticipating, obviously, imprisoning people who violate the new gun control laws, including the... Uh, including Virginia residents who were law-abiding gun owners before the perhaps before the uh, passage of the recent laws. This has sparked a Second Amendment sanctuary movement within the state of Virginia, where at the local and regional level, you have uh, gun rights groups and individuals, individual politicians, 
essentially saying we're not going to enforce KKK Northam's new laws the same way the left suggests that uh, we shouldn't enforce federal immigration laws, uh, tit for tat, so to speak. Uh, Virginians have turned up to these budget meetings to talk about gun rights. And some Democrat lawmakers have listened politely, but not all. And we have a hot mic moment between two Virginia Democrats at a recent budget meeting in Fairfax County that went like this. We're going to stick around for the four or five gun guys. Yeah, it's difficult to hear, but it starts with you're going to stick around for the 25 gun guys. After uh, mostly an audible exchange, uh, the other lawmaker says they are mixed up little kids. Then the colleague says, yeah, as long as we just don't respond. So when you hear some of these gun grabbers say how they respect the rights of the law abiding, they're just trying to provide for the public safety. They want to hear people out. This is what they really think of you. You're going to stick around for the 25 gun guys, you know, law abiding gun owners who have something to say at a budget meeting of their duly elected officials. They are mixed up little kids. That's who they think you are. And now you know that they are who you thought they were. This is the Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prop Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. There were uh, two topics on yesterday's show, and I wanted to revisit with a little bit of uh, professional expertise one, the uh, story of Nick Sandman and the Covington Catholic School Catholic Schoolboys and how they were treated by the press uh, per the event that occurred when they were waiting for the bus after the March for Life in D.C. nearly a year ago. Uh, uh, this against the backdrop of CNN settling one of the multiple libel suits the Sandman family had filed against media outlets that smeared his son internationally. CNN, Washington Post, NBC News. The NBC News, Washington Post case is still pending. Uh, And also this uh, discussion we had about the spike in youth suicide, uh, both uh, boys and girls, and what may be some of the proximate causes and what may be some of the things parents and others can do to deal with young people that are going through depressive episodes, whether clinical or whether clinical or not. For more on both of these topics, pleased to be joined by Leonard Sachs. He is a doctor. He's the author of a number of successful books, best-selling books, including Why Gender Matters, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, 
and uh, the collapse of parenting. Dr. Sachs, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. So on, on Nick Sandman and um, just just the, the idea that uh, young people, we're talking about people barely in their teens, high school kids, can be used as political weapons, can be used by powerful media companies to try and tell a story they're hell-bent on telling. Um, how did you receive the potential impact something like that could have on on kids, particularly perhaps a kid less well-adjusted than uh, than uh, Nick Sandman? <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm chuckling because that's it's really not my area of expertise. It was uh, the media going berserk there uh, without adequate information and uh, then having to apologize and retrace their steps when the context was filled in. But, but I mean, something like uh, that, something like that happens to one of your kids and, and it doesn't have to be international in scope. It can just be local. It could be something that happens in school An accusation is made. And in this hyper politicized environment, uh, something that just happens locally that doesn't get press coverage, but happens within your community of interest can feel like it's international in scope. And so h- how does a parent deal with a, a a child who's been accused and in this and in a lot of cases wrongly accused of doing something terrible, or they did something wrong, but it was from an innocent place, not a malicious place. Well, I think it depends on the situation, um, and parents have to be cautious and gather all the information. Uh, I actually lead a workshop for schools called "How to Deal with Difficult Parents," because. Uh, we increasingly find that when a kid is caught cheating on a test, for example, the parents swoop in like attorneys demanding evidence and mounting a defense uh, and not recognizing that, look, we, the, the parents and the school, we're on the same team. We both want our child to be honest and to fulfill their potential. Uh, so let's get all the information first. Uh, so, again, I think it depends a lot on the specifics of each particular situation. Kids are not angels. Uh, none of us all are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And parents sometimes allow their in- instincts to protect their child against any accusation, uh, sometimes to work against the best interests of the child. This has nothing to do with the Nicholas Sandman case, but... Uh, talking more about the uh, when I have actually worked with schools to create, uh, offer strategies to work with parents, uh, that sometimes parents jump to conclusions that are not warranted. So in every case, uh, you want to be patient, get all the information, regard the school ideally as your ally and not your adversary. And if that's not possible, if the school's values are radically different from yours, then maybe you need to find a different school. Uh, Restraint, gather all the information. Maybe you should do workshops for members of the media. Uh, I I want to move over to this Richard Friedman piece that we talked about on uh, my show yesterday, Dr. Friedman from Cornell University, talking about um, the spike in in the suicides of young people. 56% increase, according to the CDC, between 2007 and 2017 for young people aged 10 to 24, rate of teen depression up 63%. And he goes through you know, perhaps a number of correlative issues like social media, 
um, uh, drug and alcohol use as perhaps an ex- explanation, although he sort of rejects that um, and uh, c- essentially concludes, you know, we don't have all the answers, but there are some things that we can do. We should, he argues, have universal screening of teenagers at school with parental consent to identify those suffering from depression, adequate funding and resources to match the mental health needs of our young people and so forth. Um, do you see this uh, problem uh, in you know, through the same lens that he sort of describes? Okay, now you're talking about something I do know something about. Okay. <laughs> that is my area of expertise. I am a medical doctor. I've been a medical doctor for more than 30 years, and I also have a doctorate in psychology. So I'm an MD and a PhD, and indeed this is a central focus of the work that I do with schools and with communities. I don't even use the term spike. I prefer the the term trend because spike implies that it's going up and it's going to come back down. There's no evidence that it's going to come back down. There's mm-hmm. trend line the rise in anxiety and depression among American teens is going up and up and up, and there is no taper in that trend line. Uh, So it's very disturbing. I agree that we cannot blame illegal drugs for this because there has been no rise in illegal drug use among American teens over the last 10 years. Uh, But uh, there has been clearly a rise in anxiety and depression among American teens that's pretty dramatic and as I said shows no sign of tapering so what is driving that that's been a major focus of the research of of Gene Twenge uh, who wrote a book called iGen I-G-E-N referring to the internet generation and she believes based on the evidence that screens are a major factor here Uh, she shows and we do have good research on this point that American teens are spending less time with other teens face-to-face, and more time in their bedroom looking at a screen, whether that's uh, on Instagram or TikTok or playing a video game. And it's not what teens need. Uh, teens, adolescence is that period in the human life cycle when the need for face-to-face encounters with other humans is greatest, and kids are getting less of it. Um, so I think that Gene Twenge has part of the answer, which is that kids are spending too much time with screens and not enough time with other people. Or as she summarizes it very succinctly, kids are now less likely to kill one another than they were 10 years ago and but, much more likely to kill themselves. But what about The rate of teen-on-teen teen homicide has dropped over the last 10 years, but the rate of teen suicide has risen and continues to rise. So I think screens is part of the answer, but it's not the whole story. And I think to get sucked into this war about screens is missing a bigger and underlying problem. And, and that bigger, and that, un- yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I sort of wanted to set you up there because uh, we, we find in Silicon Valley that uh, teenage suicide there in an affluent area is about 6x the national average. So uh, so you assume uh, they can't be spending that much more time uh, before b- uh, behind screens than anybody else around the country, so maybe there's something else at play. Yes, there is. There's, there's at least two other th- things in play. One is connections across generations. And we, again, have lots of research from anthropologists who studied other cultures. And what they find is that what children and teens really need is strong connections to adults who care about them. Hopefully that's their parents, but 
there needs to, every child, every child needs a grown-up who loves them and care, cares about them, and preferably more than one, more than two. Again, the, the scholars teach us that in every enduring culture, there's a community of adults for kids. And that was true of American culture. Again, we have scholars like uh, Robert Putnam at Harvard, who has documented this at great length, that a generation ago, and, it and, was common for American kids to hang out with grown-ups, for boys to be working under the hood of a car with men, for uh, girls to be in a sewing circle with women. That was common in the United States. It's very rare today. Dr. Sachs, Instead, Dr. Sachs we're going to have to leave it there. I, I apologize. Dr. Leonard Sachs, uh, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Collapse of Parenting, as well as Why Gender Matters, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge. Dr. Sachs, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Thanks again. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Over the summer, last summer, July, Mark Hemingway uh, penned this piece of Federalist.com. He's a book editor at the Federalist, former senior writer at the Weekly Standard. He penned this uh, important piece uh, that we picked up at RealClearPolitics.com, had him on the show to talk about uh, the question, who will clean up America's voter rolls? He took a perusal of some of the local states and localities around the country where you have more registered voters than you do people living in the particular place. For example, uh, Hemingway found L.A. County has an estimated 1.6 million more voters than population. Uh, that's that's a big number. Los Angeles, uh, this from Hemingway's piece last summer, L.A. County may be California's worst offender, but 10 of the state's 58 counties also have registration rates exceeding 100 percent of the voting age population. Uh, nearly one-fifth registration rates exceeding 100% of the population. In fact, the voter registration for the entire state is 101%. Maybe that's how Hillary won the state by 3 million votes. He uh, went on to say, look, California is not alone. There are eight other states that have total voter, reg- voter registration tallies exceeding 100%. And in total, 38 states have counties where voter reg- registration rates exceed 100%. And that includes some swing states. And the que- so the question, who will clean up America's voter rolls and in time for the 2020 election, November? Well, uh, the answer may be Judicial Watch, which uh, sort of served as the shadow Department of Justice during the Obama administration, has filed suit against five states with over-registrations. Four of those states, arguably, are battleground states. I'm not so sure Virginia is, but Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Colorado certainly are. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Mark Hemingway, again, book editor at The Federalist, former senior writer at The Weekly Standard. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad somebody was paying attention to uh, what you were writing about last summer and uh, and, and sort of sounding the, the warning signal about uh, over-registrations across the country. Uh, is uh, this a judicial, watch, a judicial watch complaint what you were hoping for? Um, well, I mean, obviously there needs to be a much more broad-based effort um, in terms of following up on this stuff. I believe during the Obama years, I mean, the Justice Department, which is supposed to be on top of this stuff and enforcing, you know, federal voting laws that, that these things all occur in violation of, uh, didn't file any complaints um, whatsoever against, you know, any states or localities.
realities while Obama was president. Um, and the Trump administration actually has been like really slow to move on this, even though President Trump has obviously made a you know big issue out of uh, you know voter fraud issues. So a lot more needs to be done, and it would be nice if the Justice Department was bringing these lawsuits and not just an outside group like Judicial Watch. And it's it sort of does the same. Com- I mean, you know, obviously Chicago, where Chicago, Cook County, where the dead vote, yuck, yuck, yuck. But um, it, whether it's o- o- over registrations or people who are able to vote who are in this country illegally and don't have that right. Uh, I mean, that's a real thing, not just because it impacts elections, but because it disenfranchises Americans. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but but I, I want to be clear on something. There are definitely some instances here where um, voter registration problems are very much a sort of partisan political issue. In fact, sure. California is particularly bad because in the late 90s, uh, the attorney general and the oh, sorry, the, the secretary of state or state authorities got a sort of permission. Essentially, they got a letter from Janet Reno, uh, who was then attorney general under Clinton, basically telling them that they could reinterpret the, the voter enforcement statutes in the National Voter Registration Act to mean what something opposite of what they mean. You know, and they persisted under that interpretation of the law, which the Supreme Court ruled was totally erroneous two years ago um, for. You know, decades, and that's part of the reason why voter registration rolls are are so out of whack in California. Having said that, you know, when you've got 38 states that have voter registration problems, including a lot of red states with serious problems like Kentucky and other things like that, yeah, clearly the problem is not just a partisan issue. A big part of the problem is simply that we don't fund or provide adequate resources for elections and election authorities in this country, and we've been kind of asleep at the wheel on uh, on this. Um, there's a good example, for instance, um, remember there all the controversy about Stacey Abrams who ran for governor of Georgia and refused to concede, even though she lost by 60 or 70,000 votes. Um, she made a big deal out of this, you know, going around the country, you know, refusing to concede, and, and she accused her opponent, who was secretary of state before he got elected uh, governor of, of Georgia, of you know, disenfranchising voters en masse because he kicked a million and a half voters off of the rolls in Georgia over the preceding eight years or so that he had been Secretary of State. Well, there are like 11 million people in Georgia. Uh, according to census figures, about 10, 11 percent of Americans move every single year. Um, you know, in a state that large, if you're not kicking, you know, you know, lots of people off of the rolls, you know, every year or updating their new um, precincts that they've moved to, then you're not doing your job, essentially, and you're opening the door up for fraud. And, in fact, even though she was accusing him of massively disenfranchising voters, the fact is, I, I can't remember, there were a number of counties when he assumed office where there were more voters than, you know, the, the eligible adult the voting age population in Georgia. So, you know, her claims were laughable, but it also, again, <laughs> illustrates how, you know, even the Republican um, politicians who claim to be concerned about these issues aren't doing enough to stay on top of this problem. And I, I want to also uh, just uh, seize on that word you said, fraud, because when uh, Republicans make an accusation about the prospects of voter fraud, when you have slipshod systems like you're describing, oh, it, yeah, it doesn't occur. Uh, that's that's silly. You know, that's that's a right wing talking point. Well, the Heritage Foundation keeps a running database of actual instances of voter fraud where people have been arrested and prosecuted. We have many here in Illinois over the years. It's not a lot. 
I mean, I, I don't know what a lot is, I suppose, but but they're they're you know, relative to the amount number of people voting. It's if the uh, the incidence of attempted voter fraud or actual voter fraud don't affect so many votes. It's a small percentage of the votes. But, you know, a small percentage of a big number is a big problem and it still undermines the legitimacy of elections in the public's mind and and is discouraged and then that acts to discourage people from participating. So, I mean, it's a serious thing that just isn't taken seriously. And I agree with you that it's across the spectrum. No, you're exactly right. Voter fraud in this country is not a huge problem, but it is definitely a problem. And one of the talking points on the left is, is literally that voter fraud is a quote unquote myth which is absolutely not true. It's a serious problem. And it has, you know, you know, there, there are a number of close elections in any given election cycle. Like some are shockingly close. Um, remember when it was it 2008 when Al Franken won his Senate seat in Minnesota, um, it was only by a couple hundred votes. I mean, this is a statewide senatorial election. Subsequently, there were a bunch of analysis and stuff that came out that questioned whether or not uh, felons illegally voting and a bunch of other things um, meant that, that Franken was actually, you know, legally elected. I mean, none of these things were definitive, but they certainly were concerning enough to raise questions about whether Franken was rightly elected senator of, of Minnesota. And when you consider that, say, Franken went on to be the 61st vote for Obamacare, um, which, you know, passed by a razor-thin margin in the Senate, um, you look at how consequential that was. I mean, that was, you know, massively redefined our politics, and it may have been a result of an election result that was bad. And so we really need to think about this stuff and pay attention to it because it absolutely has consequences, even if it's not, you know, a huge problem. Um, it, you know, the fact that it's a problem at all can be, you know, like you say, disenfranchising and, and very, very consequential. He is Mark Hemingway, book editor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com, former senior writer at The Weekly Standard, and husband to the lovely Molly Hemingway, also uh, an accomplished uh, author and commentator in her own right. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. And if you thought that Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla were strange political bedfellows uh, for their their movie No Safe Spaces, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, how about Dennis Prager and Ricky Gervais? They uh, both uh, seemingly can't get uh, out of the uh, crosshairs of the D.C. press corps, including the entertainment press corps. Of course, there's still fallout from Gervais's Sunday night monologue at the Golden Globes taking... Hollywood hypocrites to task. One L.A. Times critic is saying the last thing anyone needed was for the smirking master of ceremonies to reprimand them for having hope. Oh, they're just, you know, they're such they're such a hopeful lot. They're so innocent. Uh, Ricky Gervais responding. uh, He's not backing down. Responding to the journalists that are now covering for their and, and. sucking up to their Hollywood friends. Gervais has tweeted, I, uh, uh, Gervais tweeted, I always knew there were morons in the world that took jokes seriously, but I'm surprised that some journalists do. Surely understanding stuff is pretty fundamental to their job, isn't it? Just makes it funnier, though, I guess. Maybe understanding stuff is not so fundamental to their job as Ricky Gervais once thought. He also took on 
those who are suggesting that Gervais was doing the bidding of the right wing. He tweeted, simply pointing out whether someone is left or right wing isn't winning the argument. If a joke is good enough, it can be enjoyed by anyone. It's not all about you. And just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Yeah. Uh, And he had other uh, comedians and celebrities rally to his defense as well, pointing out the hypocrisy, pointing out that our philosopher kings in Hollywood uh, may be emperors without clothing. So that continues. And so does Dennis Prager's targeting. I mean, it's so interesting. Dennis Prager, who's a colleague and a friend, really enjoyed the times he's come to Chicago. We've done cigar nights for listeners. It's been a ton of fun. I mean, he's a perfect gentleman, of course. You know, I'm sure you listen to him. And the, the censorship of YouTube of Prager videos and disproportionately Prager videos about the state of Israel, including from left uh, men of the left like Alan Dershowitz, is remarkable. Troubling, obviously. And, and then there's this. Newsweek, speaking of those same journalists. Newsweek taking uh, a riff that Dennis Prager did about uh, about young people and uh, using Anne Frank as an example. Newsweek headline, conservative radio host ridicules Anne Frank, quote, I don't get my wisdom from teenagers, unquote. Prager responding to this, uh, as is appropriate, shouldn't let these smears go unresponded to, unanswered. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, the targets they pick, that is Prager, a religious Jew, as he writes, who has devoted much of his life to the welfare of the Jewish people, served on the board of the U.S. Holocaust Museum, made the most widely viewed pro-Israel video in the world, written a book on anti-Semitism that's in its third printing, founded a synagogue and a Jewish day school. And Newsweek is going to take him to task by taking something out of context that he said in reference to Anne Frank. And this was uh, a uh, part of a video podcast for PragerU called The Fireside Chat. And, and I'm sure you've consumed some of these fireside chats. He received a question about uh, people's base, uh, whether or not people are basically good. Um, and the... Uh, the, the listener who asked the question said, Anne Frank is quoted as saying, despite everything, I believe that people are really good at heart. How do you respond to the quote? So Prager's engagement of Anne Frank was prompted by a listener who wanted to Prager to weigh in on sort of this theological question about whether people are inherently good or not. He wrote, he, or excuse me, he responded, and he wrote word for word in this piece in pjmedia.com where he responded. She wrote in her diary, the most famous Holocaust document, she was a teenage girl, a Dutch Jewish girl, who hid with her family until they were betrayed by someone to the Nazis, who then shipped them to death camps, and she died murdered by the Nazis in death camps. She was about 16 years old, maybe 15. Her diary is very famous. It gives a face to the horror of the Holocaust. I know she wrote that, and my answer is it doesn't matter that she wrote it. I don't get my wisdom from teenagers that she was a wonderful young woman and wrote an unbelievably powerful document that will last forever is beside the point. I don't expect 16 year olds unless they grew up in religious Jewish or a Christian home uh, where it is taught as basic religious doctrine that people are not born basically good. She was a secular Jew. Most kids believe that people are basically good, but it's not true. So it has never been an issue for me. Well, you disagree with Anne Frank. So what? And by the way, to be very serious for a moment, I would be curious, I've thought about this a lot, if 
I were able to visit Anne Frank while in a concentration camp, would she still have believed that? We don't know. That is hardly ridiculing Anne Frank. The targets of the left. This is the Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Are you uh, ready for Black Lives Matter Week at your local schools? Yeah. Black Lives Matter Week. February 3rd to the 7th. That's when it will be held in 2020. Here in the Chicagoland area where I reside... They're already getting prepared. I'll give you an example. A K through five school in Evanston, Washington School, to be specific. Evanston, you know, the home of Northwestern University and uh, a whole lot of socialists. They have uh, handmade signs on the fence surrounding the playground at Washington School. Are you white? Then you're privileged. Use it for good. And hate is a four letter word. Yeah, okay. Uh, the hate is a four-letter word is maybe anodyne, but it's less offensive than are you white, then you're privileged, use it for good. But that's the agenda. The entire Evanston, Skokie School District, Suburban Chicago School District will participate in National Black Lives Matter Week, February 2020, uh, as they uh, write, quoting them, as a part of our strong commitment to racial equity from pre-K to eighth grade, pre-K. Students will discuss race and racism in their classroom with the guidance of their teacher. The learning will be greatly supported by conversations parents have at home with their children. Or else, I suppose, is the uh, implication. What's the curriculum? Uh, That week, February 3rd to the 7th, Monday, restorative justice, empathy, and loving engagement. Tuesday, diversity and globalism. Should be an interesting discussion with pre-K children about uh, globalism. Fly on the wall for that one. Wednesday, trans-affirming, queer-affirming, and collective value. For kindergartners and pre-Kers. Trans-affirming, queer-affirming, and collective value. All right. Thursday, intergenerational, black families and black villages. Friday, black women and unapologetically black. They uh, provide uh, some source material for you to start uh, thinking about what's coming a few weeks from now. You know, you want to get those uh, propellers spinning for the kindergartners. Attach a piece from uh, a gentleman named Andrew Grant Thomas from a couple of years ago entitled, Your Five-Year-Old is Already Racially Biased? Here's what you can do about it. He uh, starts by referencing a middle school teacher in Florida who was terminated for uh, having discussions with... uh, grammar school kids where she was asking them to uh, describe how comfortable or uncomfortable they would feel being around people different than them. Some 41 scenarios identifying people in terms of race, ethnicity, nationality, religion. For example, your new roommate is a Palestinian and Muslim. A group of young black men are walking toward you on the street. The young man sitting next to you on the airplane is an Arab. Your new suite mates are Mexican. You're assigned Lab partner is a fundamental Christian. What do you do besides get out a scorecard? 
the uh, parents at the school in Florida were upset, so she got terminated. But this is where Andrew Grant Thomas says uh, made a big, big mistake. Uh, one of the parents said, sometimes kids are just too young to start that at that age and in school. No, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, that's wrong. According to Andrew Grant Thomas and the Black Lives Matter movement, such sentiments are familiar and deeply misguided. In the United States, a lot of us believe that children, especially white children, are racial innocents, completely naive, curiously fragile with respect to the realities of race or both. The truth, the truth is that well before their teen years, the vast majority of children are well aware of prevailing, bi- prevailing biases, and most kids of all racial stripes have taken on a bunch of their own. you got to get to the kids in, in, uh, uh, at age five where racial biases are already forming and get them into these totalitarian re-education camps called K-12 through school systems, some of them at least, and have them properly programmed by purveyors of agitprop like Mr. Grant Thomas and, frankly, with, this, with respect to this school district, the administrators and most of the faculty, teachers. Here's uh, something to contemplate. And, for, and this, does, this is just getting into programming kids. Forget the Black Lives Matter impact on police, for example, and policing of urban centers. Uh, forget, for example, the reparations movement that uh, at one point early on in this primary for the Democrat Socialist nomination for president was a big deal. Well, the candidates uh, discussing it at debates, arguing about who was more pro-reparation. I guess that was before Reparation H went back to California. Shelby Steele, the great Shelby Steele, an academic at the Hoover Institution, who's written a number of books, uh, perhaps his... Uh, uh, Seminal work is White Guilt. If you haven't read it, you should read it. He was featured, one of the people interviewed, in the Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla movie, No Safe Spaces. And he tackled the ideology behind the Black Lives Matter movement, behind these sorts of curricula, behind reparations. And this is what uh, Shelby Steele had to say. He won't be invited, by the way, for Black Lives Matter Week to offer a different perspective to the kids. In America, you were brutalized from birth on. You were whipped, lashed. Your children was, to, was taken from you and sold away. Your wives were, were used at the will of the, of, of the uh, overseer, whatever. I mean, it just was dehumanizing in every conceivable way and for centuries. So you got a beef. How long are you going to ride that beef? Uh, how long do you think it's going to take? Because the only person who can break that bond is you inside yourself. Say, well, just because white people were once racist does not mean I'm going to sell out my life. I'm going to ask less of myself uh, and claim that I'm being held back by victimization. Uh, and that's what is... Uh, that what is so startling to me, the, the way that, is, that you see now of inventing, reinventing, as I say, the, the oppression uh, in your mind, the same oppression that is fading out of the world. As it fades, you cling and reinvent it, rebuild it. And so you now become the racist overseer of yourself. 
you become the racist overseer of yourself. That's what the Black Lives Matter curriculum is. That's what the uh, 1619 Project is. And Shelby Steele and other deep thinkers like him are the actual antidote to it. Uh, so you want to get involved in your kids' schools and the curriculum that's being imposed on them? Bring White Guild from Shelby Steele to class. This is the Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and old monarchies die hard, but perhaps this will hasten the demise of Britons. The announcement of Megxit. Prince Harry and uh, Princess Meghan, or whatever the heck she's called, deciding to step back from the British royal family and uh, probably make their way to America to try their hand at being celebrities here. You know, like uh, Prince Barack and Princess Michelle Obama. Uh, Yeah, I I lost interest personally in... um, the British monarchy right after Henry VIII beheaded Anne Boleyn. But this Dominic Green piece at Spectator USA, he's the life and arts critic there. He's very funny. Uh, great, dry British sense of humor uh, may get me back interested because he believes Megxit is doomed. <laughs> I love the way that he characterizes the big announcement. The language of Wednesday's announcement is that nauseating blend of self-affirmation and Hollywood PR that is Megan. That is Harry and Meghan's equivalent of baby talk uh, when they said, quote, after many months of reflection and internal discussions, we've chosen to make a transition this year in starting to carve out a progressive new role within this institution, unquote. They want to become financially independent, they say, while also continuing to fully support the brand formerly known as Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, Green observes, nobody believes this kind of gaseous hype. Most people are revolted by its moral aggrandizement. It confirms that neither of them understands the nature of royalty and its contract with the civilians. Meghan, to be fair, is late to the game, but Harry has no excuse. He was only meant to be good at one thing, being royal, and he's failed. What uh, Dominic Green thinks is on the horizon for Prince Harry and our Princess Meghan. They will make documentary films for Netflix to monetize their titles the way the Obamas are monetizing theirs. They'll pretend to be financially independent of their in-laws, but they'll become financially dependent on the kindness of rich strangers and the kind of people whose idea of fun is taking a progressive private jet to progressive fundraisers in progressive Hollywood. The world will see Harry and Meghan for who they are, not what they symbolize. We will rapidly tire of their patronizing petulance, and only then will they finally attain the meaningful life they think they seek as human sacrifices on the altar of celebrity. One can only hope. I think this is spot on. Uh, They'll get chewed up in Hollywood and, uh, you know, their stars will tarnish. But uh, also, too, maybe this will reflect the increasing divide between these, the romantic notions of betters in positions of authority, even symbolic positions of authority, And the hoi polloi, you know, all the rest of us. Isn't that in part what Brexit was about? Isn't that in part what the ascent of Boris Johnson 
uh, represents. And, of course, the same thing goes across the pond here in the U.S. This is the Dan Prop Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. I, I tell you, this, these are difficult times for the mullahs in Tehran and difficult times for some members of Congress like Representative Omar as well. I feel ill a little bit because of, of everything that is taking place. And I think every time I hear of conversations around war, I find my, myself being stricken with uh, PTSD. I find peace knowing that I, I serve with great advocates for, for peace and, uh, and people who have shown courage against war. Sorry, I'm having a, a panic attack. I, I... <laughs> you need medical attention? Would you like me to call you an ambulance? I can't. Okay, if you want to sit down, I can explain this to you, okay? You bring me a ticket. I'm going to take you to the court because I, I have... <laughs> PTSD. Yeah, that was New York politician uh, Jennifer Schwartz Berkey. Perhaps Chuck DeCarl can provide some palliative care. He is CNN's very first special assignment correspondent. He served with the 20th Special Forces Airborne. Outside consultant to the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment for 25 years and contributor to amgreatness.com. Chuck DeCaro, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, what about that uh, Trump's uh, policies here, making it uh, very difficult for our legislators like Representative Omar to do her job because they're so troubling and, and uh, uh, have such an impact on her mental health? Well, uh, mental health and Omar, you know, this calls for a debate right there. Sure, per, yeah. Um, but I'd wonder what the her constituents would say is, well, if she can't think of PTSD, why would we want to reelect her? Yeah. In addition to that, I mean, it's it's appropriate to ridicule her. But there's also something that's really insulting about it. And many veterans have taken umbrage at that statement because it cheapens the PTSD that uh, they are suffering from, you know, because of their combat duty. Oh, I concur. If you get PTSD from misstatements from the administration, Do her constituents really want her to be their representative because she can't think properly because she has bouts of PTSD every day? Not so sure about that one, Dan. One of the uh, pieces you uh, recently penned for amgreatness.com, you uh, suggest some policies for the administration, President Trump announcing yesterday, Iran uh, standing down, new sanctions being imposed to try to incentivize better behavior, but opening up a diplomatic channel for them to do so and trying to enlist our Western allies to put pressure on them to behave better as well, meaning, you know, stop being a state sponsor of terror. One of the things you suggested could be an avenue for additional pressure is an electronic embargo on Iran. Explain what you mean. Yeah, in 1945, when the UN was still in San Francisco, they wrote up the UN Charter. And in it, there are three articles of interest. Article 40 is for censure, which has been done to Israel 
couple of times. The other one is Article 42, which is active combat operations, which we saw in Korea during the Korean War. And, you know, for peacekeeping and peace enforcement missions around the world since 1945. But the one in the middle is Article 41, obviously, and it talks about embargoes. But in the fine print, it says air, rail, telephonic, and other means of communication. Heretofore, you know, the UN has uh, used physical embargoes. You can't have this oil and you can't have that wheat and you can't have these arms, you know, things. But, you know, the framers of the UN Charter were thinking even back then about means of communication. Before the Internet, before bytes, before transistors, um, there was this coda uh, in the embargo part in Article 41 that says, you know, interrupting means of telephonic, telegraphic, and other means of communication. So imagine what could be done if um, under the existing embargoes, assuming that the, the language is correct, you then went to embargo bytes, B-Y-T-E-S, bytes, uh, little packets of information that go back and forth uh, on, on various um, distribution, electronic distribution systems, and just stop it. Now, if you're trying to run a modern state whose primary source of wealth is the recovery and distribution of petroleum, you know, you're going to need computers to do that. And if suddenly they all went out, you would have some problems. Given that the mullah's biggest problem is cash flow, you could really affect them directly by embargoing telecommunications. And that was the proposal I put forth in American Greatness. Well, so you could do – there's, there's layers to this, right? I mean, you could potentially cripple their Air Defense Command and uh, other uh, military-related command centers. You could uh, interrupt – the propaganda that they push through communication channels and perhaps push your own messaging to the Iranian people around the mullahs. There's, there's, there's sort of a lot of options here if you gain control of their comm infrastructure, right? That's correct. The problem is no one's ever done this before, and to the best of my knowledge, no one's ever proposed it before, but it's in there in the, um, in the Article 41 um, verbiage. So, yeah, you could do that and, and create a lot of havoc without having to drop bombs on people. You might, you might have to, to bomb a telecommunications relay station, or you might have to fly around with something we call CHAMP, C-H-A-M-P, which is a um, remotely piloted vehicle that sends out pulses of electromagnetic radiation enough so that you can take out, you know, operating computer chips at, you know, relatively short ranges. And you could cause a good deal of consternation if you had a coordinated uh, electronic attack. And because the word is interrupt and the word interrupt isn't defined, you could take out their stuff and put in your stuff and still be under the definition of the word interrupt. So there's a lot of things that you could do. Again, the language is there, but there's been no precedent for such a thing. The other thing that's interesting about the dynamic uh, in 2020 as opposed to previous administrations and previous generations going back at least to 1979 is that uh, because of the fracking revolution, uh, America is not so dependent on foreign oil these days. And so when uh, this, when, when sanctions have been imposed on Iran, uh, reimposed on Iran by Trump, crippling their oil exports. And now this uh, confrontation over the last several days, 
you really haven't seen price spikes in gas and uh, domestic price spikes in gas in this country because we're energy independent in a way that we haven't been. And so it, that this is sort of an illustration of what a lot of politicians talked about throughout those generations. We need to be energy independent. It's a national security issue, and this is proof positive. Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely correct. And also add to the fracking revolution deregulation um, since the end of the Obama administration and the beginning of the Trump administration by deregulating, um, you know, where you could go for oil. Um, you know, we've, we've now are energy independence. So part of that is technical. The other one is regulatory. And um, we might want to continue along that road. In addition to this, we, if you're going to do anything that's going to interrupt the supply, you need to have conversations with those people who are extraordinarily dependent on Iranian oil, um, you know, like the Chinese, um, to sort of put them in a position that, um, you know, we would be supportive of their national needs for a price, um, even if there's a, a backlog of delivering oil from Iran. Remember, not only are there restrictions on their export of oil, but, you know, they, they deal, uh, you know, uh, a lot with under-the-table uh, operations so that they seem to be, sort of, you know, participating in the uh, embargo, but somehow there's still a cash flow. You know, we've been doing these kinds of operations a very long time. I think as a catalog of these kinds of things, there's nothing new about taking out guys like Soleimani. It was true 70 years ago, 100 years ago, and remains true today. There's there are operations that be done that are done in the dark, called covert operations. That um, you know whether whether a president is you know liberal or conservative, when he sees pressure against the national security of the United States, there's a propensity for them to act. The reason why the Shah got in was a CIA and British MI6 operation in 1948, I believe, to uh, oust Mossadegh and put the Shah in. You know, that stayed through until the Carter administration in 1979 sent General Bond to Iran to try to convince the Shah to come out. And you've seen what's happened by trying to be goody two-shoes. Instead of supporting the Shah, or, you know, whatever the kind of guy he was, at least on our side, to then give a revolutionary theocracy control of the amount of oil that Iran produced, you end up with the results that you see now. Now they're on the verge of having nuclear weapons. They're, they uh, they use uh, ballistic missiles when they feel like it. And so I kind of think that, um, you know, maintaining um, the idea of utilization of covert operations is a good one. He is Chuck DeCaro, served with the 20th Special Forces Group, Airborne, outside consult for the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment for more than two decades and contributor to American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Chuck, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today held a presser in which she addressed both her war powers resolution, which she is moving, and the articles of impeachment, which she is not moving. Uh, First, on the war powers resolution intended to rein in, from her perspective, President Trump, uh, she explained. Uh, Last week, in our view, 
uh, the president, the administration conducted a provocative, disproportionate airstrike uh, against Iran, which endangered Americans, and did so without consulting Congress. Uh, when I was informed of this uh, uh, attack, uh, the administration took responsibility for it uh, uh, over the weekend. Uh, I said, why did you not consult with Congress? Well, we held it in closely. We held it in cl- closely. No, you have a responsibility to consult with Congress. Uh, no, we held it close. So what? whoever close means. Close means not you. That's what it means. Close means I'm not going to apprise people who disagree with my perspective on Iran, not to mention people who routinely call me a traitor, <laughs> traitor to this country. I'm not going to prize them of what I intend to do because I don't trust you to keep it quiet, even if you disagree. Uh, that, that's why. Oh, oh, by the way, just in terms of standard setting, uh, it would be nice if uh, one of the uh, adroit members of the D.C. press corps would ask uh, Speaker Pelosi about Hillary and the Obama administration. Is the standard that you're applying now, is that uh, similar to the standard you've attempted to apply in, apply in the past? Say, for example, when Secretary of State Clinton had a uh, sit-down with CBS News to celebrate the death of Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed Yes, we came... We saw he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, oh, I'm sure it did. Isn't that funny? Could you imagine if President Trump or anybody in the Trump administration, Pompeo, would have exhibited that sort of bloodlust? Can you imagine? Ross Dothat of the New York Times uh, trying to uh, prevent the gaslighting that the left is efforting on recent history. He tweeted, useful for maximal hysteria over Trump to forget an Obama war that, one, lacked congressional approval, two, lacked a post-war plan, three, toppled a dictator who had given up WNDs, four, provided zone for ISIS, five, worsened refugee crisis, six, set stage for still ongoing second Libyan civil war. And that doesn't even contemplate the tragic the tragic events at the US embassy in, uh, US compound in, in Benghazi does it uh, Benjamin Haddad part of the Atlantic Council tweeting out as well at this time of their presidencies Trump's two predecessors had started wars in the Middle East he hasn't the apocalyptic apocalyptic commentary these last few days has completely ignored Trump's famous reluctance to use force especially for broad value-based objectives The contrast couldn't be sharper, and though uh, thus uh, Pelosi's standards couldn't be more at odds with her conduct previously. Her present standard couldn't be more at odds with her conduct previously when it was a fellow traveler, of course. I have these are my values. If you don't like these, I have others sort of moment. And this is not to say, you know, Congress wants to exert itself in this space, make sure, update the— the, res- the, the authorization that uh, the administration predicated the strike on from 2002, authorization of the use of military force against terrorists in Iraq, 2002, passed by Congress. You want to update that? Go ahead, update it. You want to make sure that uh, the executive, the executive, regardless, President Trump, the next president, future presidents, 
seek congressional authorization to use military force. Fine. Whether uh, it comes in the form of Pelosi's resolution, that's a different story. Or even the Kane-Lee resolution that's being drafted in the Senate. That's fine. But let's understand who we're talking about and how disingenuous their current positions are. The other matter that Pelosi was asked about, of course, is those articles of impeachment. Are we ever going to move this thing along? Uh, You will note for the record that Mitch McConnell is ready to go and says he has the votes to get this thing started as soon as he receives the articles. And uh, some of her colleagues in the Senate, Pelosi's that is, fellow Democrats, getting a little bit antsy about her holding on to them. Not sure how that makes much sense, how that serves Democrats' political interests, and of course, that's really what's at bar here, the politi- their political interests. You will keep asking me the same question. I keep giving you the same answer. As I said right from the start, we need to see the, the arena in which we are sending our managers. Is that too much to ask? Yeah, In October, we put forth... H.R. 660, which is House Resolution, which talked about the terms under which we would proceed further uh, to further proceed with the investigation so that people knew uh, what the uh, uh, battlefield would look like. Uh, I'm sorry. Did uh, you uh, and Schiff and Nadler all, especially Schiff and Nadler, looking for their star turn in the House with this impeachment gambit? Did you uh, apprise the Senate, get sign off from Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans about how you were going to conduct the investigation? The choices you made, well, the choices you made in terms of the rules of the game, the arena, as you said, Speaker, did you? Well, if you didn't, then why should McConnell indulge you? Uh, You have Judge Roberts presiding over the Senate trial. Do you not trust him? to be a fair arbiter of the process as so established by Senate rules. You understand, right? Per the constitution that you recently enjoyed invoking very on again, off again on that score, that uh, this is a political process. Mike Lee's op-ed I referenced on yesterday's show in the fo- uh, in, uh, at foxnews.com about the Senate's constitutional responsibilities It's not just the Senate as a jury. It's also the Senate as taking into account political considerations for the overall good of the people from their perspective. Of course, it's inherently political. You know, it's political. It was obviously not just political, but strictly partisan in the House. And so these moralizing demands that Pelosi is attempting to make on the Senate Obviously, she's not going to move McConnell. I guess she thinks she's going to move public opinion. But does she really? Does she recognize that the ground underneath her is crumbling? Well, I think the follow-up question sort of is a tell. The answer to it is a tell. So are you willing to hold on to the articles indefinitely? I'm holding them indefinitely. I'll send them over when I'm ready. And that will probably be soon. I just... You know, he said, if you don't send them over, I'm going to pass the Mexico-U.S.-Canada trade agreement. Okay. Uh, but, uh, no, we, we, we want to see what they're willing to do and the manner in which they will do it. But we- Yeah, I know you want to, but when she said, uh, you know, send them over, we want to see, but probably soon. 
probably soon. That's a reflection of the pressure she's under. That's a reflection of the unpersuasive case that House Democrats have put together and the time that she's trying to buy. This is the Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. It's a, sort of a remarkable comeback for Comrade Bernie after his heart attack and and Elizabeth Warren's ascension. People thought, well, Bernie's there's not enough room for Bernie and Elizabeth, so. It looks like Bernie's uh, going to be circling the drain fairly soon. I never really believed that because he's got a solid base of support in a crowded field, so that keeps him hanging around. And he's got a house file from his run four years ago against Hillary Clinton, which allows him to raise a lot of money, and he's raising more money than anybody else in the Democrat primary who's actually raising money. That would uh, exclude Bloomberg and Steyer generally, who are self-financing, especially Bloomberg. And so it's been interesting this week to see pieces from both Jason Riley, conservative uh, op-ed writer for The Wall Street Journal, and Matt Iglesias over at Vox.com, obviously a liberal. The headlines, Jason Riley's, be prepared for President Sanders. Matt Iglesias's, Bernie Sanders can unify Democrats and beat Trump in 2020. It's a lot of optimism for a wide uh, ideological divide. Now, Jason Riley is not nearly as sanguine as Iglesias, as you might expect, but he does note the fundraising. He does note where Bernie finds himself in the, in the polling in the first couple states, particularly Iowa, New Hampshire. He falls off after that because of his lack of support from uh, uh, older African-Americans. It's an important constituency for Democrats, of course. Uh, Jason Riley writes, odds are the Vermont senator won't be the next president, but it isn't out of the question. He uh, all if you go Iowa, New Hampshire, and then he's basically uh, in a dead heat uh, for second place in Nevada. And uh, he's third. Uh, he, he's uh, you know in the hunt at some other uh, relatively early states as well. Uh, he says, Jason Riley, this is not something he's hoping for. Of course, I mentioned he's a conservative. If you're not familiar with him. Mr. Sanders, socialism is the last thing America needs. Let's hope Democrats reject it. But in a country this divided and with voters on both sides this motivated, the plain truth is that the president is vulnerable to anyone his opponents nominate, which is all the more reason for journalists to stop treating the Sanders candidacy as a sideshow. I don't know that they're treating it as a sideshow. I mean, certainly those that are in Obama land are because of the uh, dislike that uh, Team Obama has for Bernie Sanders. They are certainly trying to tamp down the Sanders candidacy, and which is why there's seemingly some back-channeling to Elizabeth Warren, but she's languishing at present as well. Now, from the cheerleader perspective, Matt Iglesias, the Vermont senator is, a unique, is, is unique in combining an authentic values-driven political philosophy with a surprisingly pragmatic veteran legislator approach to getting things done. Yeah. This pairing makes him the enthusiastic favorite of non-Republicans who don't necessarily love the Democrat Party without genuinely threatening what's important to partisan Democrats. If he can pull the party together, it would set him up to be the strongest of the frontrunners to challenge Trump. There certainly would be an enthusiastic base led by 
the socialist Spice Girls who've endorsed Comrade Bernie, AOC, and Ilhan Omar. Uh, but are, are you are you think the American public is really ready to embrace a 77-year-old Marxist? I mean, r- remember who we're talking about here. This is Bernie Sanders, Bernie and his wife Jane in Moscow in the 80s when he was only about 80 still. Talking about Soviet, Soviet communism in the Soviet Union. I think it's also fair to point out that when we were in Moscow, for example, I think most of the people here also were extremely impressed by their public transportation system. The stations themselves were absolutely beautiful, uh, including many works of art, chandeliers that were beautiful. It was a very, very effective system. Also, I was impressed by the youth programs that they have. Uh, their palaces of, of, of culture for, for the young people, a whole variety of young uh, of programs for young people, and cultural programs which go far beyond what we do in this country. Uh, we went to a, a, a theater in Yaroslavl, which was absolutely beautiful, had three separate stages where cultural programs are put on by professional actors and actresses, including a puppeteer uh, area, and the cost, the highest price of the ticket that you can get was the equivalent of $1.50. You know, he was a grown-up then when he was in Moscow saying these things about the Soviet Union. Affordable puppet shows and dazzling chandeliers and other artwork. That's the big Comrade Bernie takeaway from the glorious revolution in the Soviet Union before the wall came down and the Soviet Union with it. This is somebody who's going to be president of the United States in 2020. You may not like Trump's personality, but you can't you can't look at that future if it's properly framed. And it will be by the Trump campaign and suggest that AOC and Omar will be enough to get Comrade Bernie across the finish line. This is the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking about uh, Comrade Bernie's electoral prospects. Uh, talking about swing voters in 2020 uh, that uh, everybody must play for to a certain extent. Very interesting piece by our friend Selena Zied on the Washington Examiner. A lot of talk, of course, uh, in the media of D.C. Press Corps about, about bluing of states like Texas as uh, people flee blue states for Texas, but they flee with their particular perspectives. You know, it turns out uh, Democrats don't like to be fleeced either. Uh, so there's a there's an organic redistribution of population going on. And, of course, in a census year, that's worth noting because congressional seats will be added or subtracted. Uh, four states have lost population since 2010. West Virginia, Illinois, Vermont and Connecticut. So three blue states and what used to be a blue state in West Virginia. But another 10 have experienced declines last year, including New York with the biggest looter, biggest loser and looter, uh, a, a net of 180,000 people left New York State. 
Over the uh, last decade, New York has lost more population to other states than any other states, uh, save Alaska, Illinois, Connecticut, and New Jersey. So, what do those states have in common? Wall Street Journal observing. Large tax burdens, politically powerful public unions. Uh, I certainly know that as a resident of Illinois, at least for the time being, uh, who uh, the worst governed state, not just in America at present, I would argue in American history by the numbers. Largest unfunded pension liabilities, worst credit rating, not just of any state in the nation at present, but since Michael Dukakis's Massachusetts some three decades ago. So they're hemorrhaging population and they're hemorrhaging GDP as uh, associated because productive people leave. They take their production with them. And so how does that change the map as you think about uh, as you think about 2020? Not that the number of electoral votes will change in 2020. That won't happen until the next well midterm and then presidential uh, in terms of the uh, distribution of members of Congress. But uh, but how does it impact these swing states? Well, what may be happening, and this is what Selena Zito, Zito argues, Washington Examiner, is you have a realignment going on. And that blue wall that came tumbling down in 2016, that's going to be difficult to rebuild in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Wisconsin, in Michigan. It's not so obvious. And she looks at the reddening of West Virginia and what that portends for Democrats in swing states. Heading into the 2016 presidential election, Hancock County, which is located along the curves of the Ohio River, had more than 12,700 Democrats and 7,100 Republicans registered to vote. Since then, Democrats have lost 2,000 of their 12,000 to either Republican or independent affiliations. She writes that the trend in West Virginia isn't just limited to the town. It's uh, where voters are leaving their ancestral party or just moving away. Uh, The story of the sentiments of these voters, the evolution of those voters, isn't limited to West Virginia in many ways, especially in their connection to place and their distrust of large government political, uh, large government, political and entertainment institutions. She writes, these voters are very similar to voters in rural, suburban and exurban voters in the swing states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio and Washington and, and, and Wisconsin. In short, Zito argues, West Virginians are giving hints to anyone who willingly uh, anyone willing to explore them deeply that what happens in West Virginia doesn't necessarily stay here. So uh, it's not perhaps if it plays in Peoria anymore, if it's it plays in West Virginia. It doesn't have the same poetry, but it may be more accurate. Uh, she goes on to elaborate on the comparison. In many cases across Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, just like in West Virginia, the parents of younger families still live in the central cities in the old neighborhood. They support the high school they graduated from, even though they may live in another school district. They support the church they grew up in, even though they may attend another church in the suburbs. They remain members of the ethnic social club. In other words, the values of many central city communities have been transferred to the suburbs and the metropolitan areas, that the shared way of life, of living, of connection. 
What reporters and pollsters tend to miss in slow growth regions is that the suburban vote requires changing the hearts and minds of voters who've been in place their entire lives. That's not easy accomplished. Uh, Their votes can also shift the results in a state. And that's certainly been what's happened in West Virginia over the years. And it's why senators like Joe Manchin have to be a little bit careful about how much they align themselves with the Democrat socialist trend in the in, in, in the party to which he still affiliates. And, and this is why they have to be a little bit careful about indulging statements like Joe Biden recently made about coal miners. Hey, if people lose their jobs because you're going to transform the economy overnight, you and your friends on the Hill, uh, is that OK with you? And he said, yeah, it's OK. If a coal miner can go 3000 feet underground, they can learn to code. Very cavalier with the lives and livelihoods of other people, particularly people that aren't doing jobs that they place high value on that have high social status. And so you see the indifference. You see the indifference to gig economy workers in California by that Democrat socialist power structure. You see the indifference to coal miners and workers in the fossil fuel sector throughout the Midwest by Joe Biden and, of course, the rest of the candidates. I mean, Joe Biden is supposed to be the moderate in this field. You see the indifference to the opinions, say, for example, in Seattle, where restaurant workers didn't want the minimum wage increase that the Democrat socialists in Seattle imposed. They thought they could make more money without the minimum wage increase and Uh, with more incentive to tip and tip better. Don't care. This is about their ideology, not about your livelihood. That's why states like West Virginia are reddening. That's why the blue wall came down in 2016. And that's why it's likely to stay down in 2020. This is the Dan Prof Show. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Chick fil A CEO Dan Cathy saying in a new letter that uh, his company inadvertently discredited, quote-unquote, what he calls outstanding organizations when it changed its giving strategy and pulled funding last year from the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. This in response to questions that were put to him in letter form from the president of the American Family Association. Uh, His name is Tim Wildman. Uh, He had asked uh, Kathy, will Chick-fil-A publicly state that it does not believe the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes are hate groups because of the ministry's beliefs about sexuality, marriage, and family. The response from Dan Cathy, these changes they made in their giving strategy were made to better focus on hunger, homelessness, and education. We understand how some thought we were abandoning our longstanding support of faith-based educa- uh, organizations. We inadvertently discredited several outstanding organizations that have effectively served communities for years Some also question if our commitment to our corporate purpose was waning. Let me state unequivocally, it is not. And he went on in the letter, the response did Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, 
to uh, talk about his family's deep uh, conviction and commitment to the Christian faith uh, and saying that uh, the uh, mission remains the same. Wildman uh, thanked uh, Kathy for his response, calling it a welcomed clarification, uh, saying, it appears Mr. Kathy understands how many evangelicals perceive the company's decision uh, as he stated that these Christian groups were inadvertently discredited. The fact that Dan Cathy called these two Christian groups outstanding organizations will mean a lot to evangelicals. Yeah, uh, it's a start. Uh, even taking Cathy uh, and Chick-fil-A in a light most favorable to them, uh, affording them the most benefit of the doubt available, it's still I still find it wanting for a couple of reasons. One, because of how badly the communication was handled when it became public. This letter coming uh, uh, this late in the game, after the firestorm it created, why did it take so long? You you understood how people were characterizing the Chick-fil-A decision, the celebrations going on in Marxist, cultural Marxist circles. In addition to that, the change in the giving strategy to focus on homelessness and education, okay, fine. There's no birthright the Fellowship of Christian Athletes has or Salvation Army has to Chick-fil-A's charitable money, philanthropy, fine, okay. Chick-fil-A gave money to an actual hate group, an actual hate group that targets Christian groups, Southern Poverty Law Center, which is an organization full of Marxist cranks. So forgive me if I'm not ready to forgive and move on. There are more apologies and more acts of contrition that Kathy and Chick-fil-A owe uh, before I'm satisfied with the decision that was made in terms of continuing to patronize their businesses. This is the Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.